Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now today is a book review of Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our Worlds by Michelle Gelfand. So, if you walk outside and do something kind of weird, will anyone mind? India's panchayats would certainly express disapproval and punish deviation. Such cultures are tight. The rules are known, conformity is widespread, and subversion is abhorred. But head to Sao Paulo and no one will care. Go to Israel and brace yourself for fiery debate. Loose cultures like these are relatively tolerant and open-minded. So, this brings me to today's fundamental question. Why do some societies strictly police norms while others turn a blind eye? Why are demands for conformity so much higher in the U.S. South? So, Michelle Gelfand's book is is truly brilliant. So what I want to do now is a two-part review of her phenomenal research and how it inspires new questions about the drivers of patriarchy. So let's first sum out the descriptive data. Gelfand and co-authors international survey spanning over 33 countries in five continents reveals a spectrum of tight and loose cultures. People in tight cultures show greater self-control, conscientiousness, less littering, lower crime, more synchrony, stronger prejudice against outsiders, lower immigration, lower ethnic diversity and more restrictions on public speech. Loose cultures, by contrast, are typically much more open, tolerant, creative and overweight. So neither of those extremes is superior. Gelfand is very emphatic that there are trade-offs. You know, with conscientiousness comes, uh, comes self-control. With social disorder comes impulsivity and lack of coordination. Each society has its own aspects which promote or undermine welfare. These cultural differences are so vast, they can even scupper international mergers. When firms merge across international boundaries, between culturally incongruous countries, they can even suffer financial setbacks. Tracking mergers and acquisitions from 1980 to 2013, Gelfand finds huge disparities, cause losses of over $100 million. Within the USA, there's great cultural heterogeneity. Southern states have far higher rates of corporal punishment, executions, and alcohol restrictions. In Texas in 2011, 28,000 students were either paddled or spanked in school. Alabama still criminalizes the sale of sex toys. Tight states like these strongly oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. What explains that heterogeneity? Well, Gelfand argues that tightness is exacerbated by threats. War, pathogens and population density trigger fear and anxiety. Existential threats like these motivate the cultural adaptation of tightness. Fearful people want their group to be strong and united in solidarity. They rally in support of authoritarian leaders and strictly punish norm violators. Strengthening internal order may have also enabled groups to survive against the odds. 
Japan has been ravaged by earthquakes and tsunamis. People have mitigated that devastation by coming together in mutual support. After the Great Hanshin earthquake, a million Japanese people volunteered to help. Gelfander and co-authors test this cross-nationally within the US and also over time. Countries that had conflicts within their borders after, 20, after 1918 have tighter cultures today. That holds controlling for wealth. Population density is also correlated with tightness. Within the US, states ravaged by more tornadoes, hurricanes and severe floods tend to be culturally tighter. The U.S. South tops the charts for both cultural tightness and exposure to ecological threats. The one question I had in reading this book, like, if Louisiana is so tight, then how come it has so many homicides? I don't know. But anyway. Fears are socially constructed, though. Uh, an example would be white supremacist ideological persuasion. States that had more slave-owning families in 1860 are now culturally tighter. So from Reconstruction to desegregation to Rush Limbo, charismatic leaders have exacerbated people's fears and compounded their desire for cultural tightness. Illegal immigrants are scapegoated, it's said to be taking our jobs, take killing us at the border, to quote Trump. So tightness is dynamic. Fears of communism motivated McCarthyist witch hunts. When Americans feel under threat, they want cultural tightness. Trump gained more support from voters who felt America was under threat. Conflict triggers support for authoritarians worldwide. After rampant criminality, many Filipinos supported Duterte because he promised stability. The post-communist surge in lawlessness, instability and joblessness in Russia similarly spiked demand for order and authoritarian control. Now, institutions and rituals can further reinforce cultural tightness. Norm adherence isn't just a function of self-regulation. Gelfand also emphasizes these institutions. So tight cultures tend to have more police per capita, more security personnel. In Singapore, there are harsh punishments for littering, drug position, and even importing chewing gum. In some Chinese classrooms, webcams broadcast children's behaviour, relaying footage to parents and school officials. Pro-sociality can also be reinforced through group rituals, like singing or exercise. Uh, a Chinese child's school day may start with carefully coordinated group exercise. That synchronization promotes unity and cooperation. It puts people into a collective frame of mind. Tightness can also be intentionally engineered to mitigate social problems. So teenage drinking used to be a major social problem in Iceland. Legislators then toughened up the law, promoted social surveillance, and teenagers cleaned up their act. So culture is quite malleable for Gelfand. Humans are adaptive. They respond to the expectations set by their communities, institutions, as well as threats and mass media. Working class Americans typically seek cultural tightness. So there's variation within the US by class. 
Working class Americans who often work in dangerous jobs, worry about making the rent and have very little social security tend to extol obedience and authoritarianism. Here's a quote from Karen, a teacher and bartender. If I got in a car accident, I'd be homeless. If I get laid off from any of my jobs, my kids will end up growing hungry. So that extreme precarity, argues Gelfand, motivates demand for conformity, for the group to be strong and united together. And when there's a fascinating uh, experiment by Nicole Simmons, and she shows that when she gives um, a bunch of people a choice of pens, so there are four green pens, one orange pen, 72% of the working class participants choose the majority colour. They choose green. They value conformity. So what, what loosens cultures up? Well, diversity. That's key for Gelfand. New York and California have long thrived as markets, attracting traders and entrepreneurs from all over the world. Gelfand argues, and I, I don't think anyone would disagree, that diversity promotes open-minded tolerance. To quote a Bemba proverb, the child who doesn't travel praises their mother's cooking. It's the same sort of thing. Looseness can also be collectively celebrated and reaffirmed through cultural events, like rock concerts, you know, where everyone can go wild and do whatever the fuck they like. I just want to make three complementary points, which I think are totally consistent with what Gelfand yeah. is saying. Job-creating economic growth is fundamental. This is what creates demand for immigrants and sustains appreciation of ethnic diversity, as we see in London or Toronto. Cities have long attracted skilled workers, enabling diversity and fostering collaborative creativity. So Grilfan's subnational uh, analysis within the USA is at the level of states. I suspect a lot of the variation is actually liberal cities versus conservative small-town communities where people are typically poorer, with weaker state institutions and heightened vulnerability to ecological devastation. So my, my third little point is that diversity is clearly not sufficient for tolerance. What matters is whether groups are seen as equally competent and deserving of status. So Garfand is certainly right that New Orleans is incredibly diverse. But it's also one of the USA's most segregated regions. So I don't want to. So I, I think we all know that living cheat by jail, people can still be incredibly racist, casteist, and sexist, for example. I mean, that's diversity, but not tolerance. Okay, let me make two, two larger criticisms of the book. What about kinship? What about religion? A girl fan's book is certainly masterful. I absolutely love it. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read. But it omits two crucial mechanisms, kinship and religion. Indians have mitigated uncertainty by building strong institutions of mutual insurance and solidarity. Jati panchayats then enforce cultural tightness. Assemblies of older men build trust in caste networks by overseeing women's sexuality and reproduction. If a woman rejected her arranged marriage, the caste panchayat might severely fine her family or even outcast them, prohibiting future marriages, cutting off their social networks and, so and sources of so mutual insurance. An entire lineage 
could be alienated and expelled from the village because of one daughter's misdeeds. That is poli- that is an institution policing cultural tightness. Uh huh. But kinship is nowhere in this. Okay. Um, uh, and religiosity. Religiosity is often triggered by threats and then sustains cultural tightness. After the 1980s farm crisis, Americans turned to God. War also seems to increase religiosity. In Uganda, Sierra Leone and Tajikistan, individuals who'd borne the brunt of intense conflict were much more likely to join religious groups and rituals. Religious rituals and fear of eternal damnation then motivate cultural tightness. Punitive gods actually substitute for strong institutions. They preserve order and lower cheating. So, let me summarize this review. I think that Rule Makers, Rule Breakers by Michelle Gelfand is amazing, but for the omission of kinship and religion. Now, here's a funny story. I mean, funny, ha-ha, in an academic sense. After I read her book, I was so enamored and excited that I pursued more of her work and read her latest publications. And what did I find? What has she done since? She's... (laughs) This is embarrassing on my part. She's written a bunch of papers all about supernatural punishment and how territorial and ecological threats motivate belief in God as punitive. So precisely the bit that was missing from her book, which in my opinion, she's now done a bunch of it. A bunch of research on. So she really is a superstar. So when people feel under siege, they seek strength through unity. They want norm violators to be punished. And who better? Who is more powerful than a supernatural entity? Right, almighty God. Galfand and co-authors demonstrate this through lab experiments, cross-sectional analyses and panel data. They find that when people's fears are primed through experimental manipulation, they're much more likely to express punitive religious beliefs. Or when they compare across US states, those states with higher ecological threats have more punitive religious beliefs. Like uh, Alabama uh, has like 62% of people believe in hell, whereas in places like Boston and Seattle, it's half that. Conflict also seems to change people's conception of God. They're more likely to see him as punitive. So, while Gelfand's book neglects religion, her latest research shows that it's super important. Which is sort of what I thought. <laughs> anyway, so we're aligned on that. Okay, now let's step back a bit and think about the wider literature. Um, here's a question for you. Does theology shape culture or is that demand itself endogenous? So in a recent paper on culture, Ajamoglu and Robinson argue that some religions are stickier and slower to change because they're hardwired with multiple specific rules. They think that theological prescriptions actually inhibit deviation. But Gelfand spins it the other way around. For her, ecological and territorial threats stimulate demand for norm policing, strict theology, and punitive gods. Does that distinction make sense, right? So Ajumoglu and Robinson are saying the 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 hard wire, the the rules in religion shape culture. Gelfand is saying no 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 no. When people are under shock or stress or under war, then they want those rules. Then they want that rigidity to keep their society in order. 
So I think that's kind of fun and interesting. Okay, so reflecting on her book, I have a bunch of questions, which you might be interested in researching. So number one, the Middle East and North Africa account for 49% of uh, 21st century deaths from terrorism. And I wonder, has chronic instability exacerbated belief in hell? Afghanistan has seen a long history of conflict. Has that amplified support for Sharia law? Then will climate breakdown? So those are my first two questions. So is there a relationship between conflict and heightened religiosity and Sharia law as a form of normative policing? I mean, Sharia law is an example of very strict cultural tightness, right? And Pew Data tells us that 99% of Afghans want it. Um, next question, will climate breakdown or is climate breakdown encouraging support for authoritarianism and normative policing? So Max Winkler has a nice paper suggesting that conflicts, epidemics, natural and economic disasters actually motivate demand for normadherence and social cooperation, especially where states are weak. So if we see more and more disasters, should we expect greater cultural tightness. Here's another question for you. If automation causes unemployment, will cultures tighten? Will people become more conformist? Another question. Does Western Europe's relatively strong security help explain why, Euro why Western Europeans remain relatively strong supporters of democracy? So if you look at VDEM data, uh, all regions have seen an increase in authoritarianism. But Western Europe has barely budged, right? The, the, the right is on the rise, but compared to everywhere else in the world where authoritarianism is super, super high and rising, Western Europe is pretty stable and democratic. If you look at this in a global perspective, there's a difference. And why is that? Now, some people might say, oh, you know, we've got strong institutions, strong civil society, but that's endogenous to people's demand. And what Michelle Gelfand is saying is that when people are under shock and stress and territorial threats, they want authoritarian leaders. So where's this demand for democracy coming from in Western Europe? Does it reflect our security and stability? Okay, next question. Gelfand argues that population density motivates cultural tightness. I also know, looking at Pew Data um, and a bunch of other studies, that there are very strong institutions of caste, Hindu nationalism and patriarchy in the densely populated uh, Gangetic Plain in India. Is that a coincidence? What's the relationship between population density and patriarchy in India? Final question, which I will be thinking about for months on end. How does Gelfand's research improve our understanding of the great gender divergence? So I'm going to be, I'll be writing more about it. Now, all the links that I've mentioned here in this podcast are on my Substack, And that's a plug for my Substack. Please subscribe, especially if you'd like to be a paid subscriber, because I want to go and do some research and I want to use my Substack to pay for that research. So if you want to support my work, I would love that. And here's how. Okay, my friends. Um, I hope you're well. Take care. 
And do read the book. I, I, I've summarized it briefly. It's superb. I promise you, you'll enjoy it and love it and learn a great deal from it.